Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Welcome to Nevada Wild, brought to you by the Nevada Department of Wildlife. I'm Ashley Sanchez, here with Aaron Keller, who was the main host last week. I was out of town, so thank you, Keller, for no taking problem. over. Um, and today, we have a very special guest. I feel like I say that a lot, but today, <laughs> this is really a special guest, I promise you. He is... Um, a internationally renowned scientist, wildlife expert, and conservationist. If you don't know who he is, you've probably heard his voice before. It is the one and only Shane Mahoney. <laughs> Welcome, Shane. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we, we've been very excited to have you here. Yeah. So this is really exciting for us. And as, I mean, I just introduced you as this renowned scientist, wildlife expert, conservationist. Clearly, not only is conservation important to you, but you've you've pretty much dedicated your life to it. I have. Um, but it was an easy dedication because um, I grew up in an extraordinarily rural circumstance, even by the standards of extremely rural. And uh, in Newfoundland, on the island where I live still, where I was born and where I will die, and... Um, Many of my earliest companions in those small communities were, in fact, animals. They were both the domestic animals that we raised for food. And they were the pets, of course, that we had, you know, the dogs and cats and so forth that we had. But um, we lived on the ocean margin, and so big creatures such as whales and dolphins and multitudes of seabirds and so on were just constantly around us all the time. And uh, we lived uh, we lived in the exact same way as Native American children lived uh, 150 years ago and on back for 14,000 years before that. We essentially had uh, no uh, adult supervision, and we simply did whatever we liked. And much of what we liked to do was what psychologists today refer to as dangerous play. <laughs> we did a lot of... Uh, things that were quite risky uh, in terms of climbing and being around boats and wharves and ocean margins and so forth. And um, animals became extremely important in my life in a way that was um, transcended the utilitarian side of things. We were a utilitarian society. We were a fishing and a hunting society. That's how we made our way. We're the oldest non-native culture in North America. We've been on that island for 500 wow. years. And uh, and so, you know, animal life and animal death were always around us, but my, my acceptance of, of that necessity that flesh eats flesh and that we are reliant on one another in that sense was also, as I said, transcended by just a very deep emotional connection with wild things. And uh, it was very common for me to be searched for as a boy, even in those small communities, because long after dark I would be somewhere, uh, often by myself and completely at ease. And uh, um, that eventually translated into, you know, studying wildlife mm -hmm. science uh, for my degrees and then going on to 
um, you know, having a major research role in the government of Newfoundland and Labrador. I ran all the wildlife research programs there. I did a lot of work on seabirds, on these amazing seabird islands, you know, uh, where life and death is around you every day. And uh, then I shifted over to big mammals and studied uh, black bears and caribou, moose, lynx, so on predator-prey systems. Um, and um, by the time I was starting university at, you know, 17 or so, um, uh, I knew I was in love with animals, but uh, I still had some notion that uh, there was kind of us and them, mm -hmm. you know. We were humans and they were animals. But I spent almost 25 years um, studying wild animals in pure wilderness settings. There were no roads where I worked ever. Um, and um, I spent a lot of time, many months of every year, with them, following them through their seasons of birthing and breeding and, you know, dying and dying from all kinds of things, heart attacks and ice falls and drownings and predation and so forth. And by the time I was into my honors degree, I guess, uh, that whole notion that we were different had fallen away. And uh, and it never recovered. Um, I don't believe there's any difference between us and animals. Um, and uh, that leads some people, of course, to say, well, you know, how can you say that? You know, we we create art, or we use tools, or we you know we can get the Voyager to go to Mars. But those are really things of mostly degree. Um, you can't take a human being and you know bring them down to Patagonia and. Uh, then one year drag them all the way up to the Canadian Arctic and then say, okay, well, well why don't you just find your way back yeah. there now? So, you know, you can find exceptional uh, capacities in, in all life forms. And um, I've watched them express pretty much every emotion that human beings do. And for most of us who have pets in particular who have horses or have dogs in particular, which are very expressive animals, uh, I think we understand this and we make a kind of an exception for them because, but I spent most of my time with wild animals and, uh, you know, when you see, when you see them and you have a chance to watch them, not for hours, but for days and months and years, um, you come to understand <coughs> that they're built uh, pretty much exactly the same as we are, and um, and we are as dependent on the natural world as they are. Um, and some of this thinking, of course, you know, it collides a little bit with the hunting uh, fraternity. That's what I was going to say is so yeah. refreshing to hear. It's yeah. like you're, you believe in this oneness with animals. I do. But then at the same time, you're so into hunting and conservation. It's really refreshing. Well, I mean, I, I think for some people it's hard to understand because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, when I say something like uh, to audiences around the world, remember they feel the bullet the same as we do. I know that's true. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. But I also know that I can't rewrite the laws of thermodynamics. I mean, energy and matter are interchangeable. We, we have to rely on food from this planet one way or the other. Uh, one way is to take it from those through those creatures that have already assimilated other kinds of food, such as you know vegetation, we eat a lot of vegetation ourselves. Of course, you know, eat a lot of salads and nuts and you know all these mm -hmm. kinds of products of the of the land. It's not like we, 
live entirely on meat. Um, but, um, you know, animal life and animal death are both beautiful and horrifying. Most animals die terrible deaths. Um, and most wild animals die terrible deaths. I've seen many terrible deaths in my career. Um, and uh, there's just no way to avoid the idea that ultimately we're, we're interdependent. We could, of course, uh, decide that we all will not eat meat and that um, we will only eat uh, vegetation. Our bodies are capable of doing that if we do it the right way. Um, but, you know, that means making decisions to end all world fisheries, for example, which two billion people rely on for their food. Mm -hmm. It also means transforming vast areas of the, uh, of the planet further to produce uh, more, you know, food that comes from uh, fruits and vegetables and so on and so forth and displacing more wildlife. It also means, of course, that um, we run the risk of devaluing wildlife. Um, you know, people who wish to visit and watch wildlife, as I love to do, um, but who don't partake in the in the harvest of wildlife, you know, th they have a very different relationship with animals. They can they can go and visit them for one day, and but it's not a continuous kind of thing. The harvester, uh, just like the harvester of a garden that someone plants, you know, they live through every meal experience what they were a part of creating or harvesting, whether that's their cabbages that they grew or their potatoes or their onions, or whether it's the animal that they killed in an alpine meadow and and hopefully killed very quickly and hopefully killed, maybe even killed without that animal even having any idea that it was ever being hunted. Um, so it's, a uh, yeah, to enter the world of conservation for me, um, you know, you can have all the mountains and all the rivers and, you know, all the oceans uh, that you want, but if they're lifeless and all that they contain are soil and rock and trees or water, salt or fresh, and there's nothing living in it, then uh, I guess that's a kind of foreign world that I don't have any interest in living in. And the only thing in the end that will keep wildlife with us is if we love it enough to make decisions that are right for it. And uh, it's a hell of a lot easier to make uh, positive decisions for something or someone you love than it is to make really positive decisions for someone who you don't care about or are indifferent to. It's very true. Yeah. You bring up a lot of good, a lot of good points. I could just listen to you talk all day. <laughs> <laughs> like what you're saying in your voice too. Yeah. You just and have I a very good way of putting it. I think um, <clears throat> the difference between conservation, conservation and, and preservation is also a good point. Mm -hmm. And it kind of aligns with what you were saying about pr not necessarily protecting it, but using it yeah. is also brings value. It does, but I also believe that, um, you know, there are places for both. Um, you know, there's some circumstances. L let's take the, you know, the seabird breeding colonies. I mean, these places where, you know, tens of thousands, in some cases millions of birds come to, to breed, and it's a very specific site where 
and only that site provides them with the food nearby that they can forage far enough to come back to feed the chick. You know, there's a lot of things that have to work right. The reason those big colonies exist, there's there are very good reasons why those birds go there. You know, in those particular cases, I firmly believe that, you know, they just should be preserved. They should be, you know, I don't agree that we, you know, should turn those places over to hunting because they're too special. On the other hand, I believe there are other wildlife preserve kinds of designations where hunting should be allowed and can be allowed and regulated. So I think we, um, you know, we need to have a range of options. I call my own organization Conservation Visions in the plural because I don't believe there's just one vision that will work for this planet and, and for all the people that are on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, 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 you know, I can have discussions with people who are very opposed to hunting, and I often have, and I've spoken to audiences like that. But I can also have, you know, conversations, obviously, with audiences that are very much in favor of that kind of harvest. Um, I'm deeply concerned about how animals are cared for, so I can have easier conversations with people who have, you know, free-range cattle and grass-fed beef and so on than I can, say, with people who, you know, have to raise hogs in very confined circumstances because that's the only way that we can produce enough pork. I mean, there's, these people are not being cruel about this. There's certain limitations mm-hmm. as to how you can hold these animals. But but the life of a, of a sow constantly producing litters of, of little piglets lying on her side in a stall compared with a grass-fed, you know, a, a cow that's able to walk and breathe the air and be in the rain and the sun... You know, it's vastly different, and I think we should be trying everything we possibly can to improve the welfare of animals that we raise for our food, too. So I have very um, I have very eclectic views on a lot of this in the sense that, um, you know, I can, I can be siding with people who uh, get very upset about, um, you know, abuse of animals under any circumstance, while at the same time I can be very pro uh, and supportive of people who hunt and who hunt properly, you know, appropriately. Um, And also, I'm also very understanding of many indigenous peoples in the world. You know, they often hunt, um, they often hunt in ways that we do not necessarily see as, as, uh, as fitting with our norms and our systems. But, um, you know, for people who live in extreme circumstances, you know, uh, places maybe like the Congo, for example, or the Amazon, surrounded by a lot of wild and dangerous animals themselves and forced to feed themselves on the basis of the limited technologies they use. We might not, for example, agree with snaring. We might find that, you know, I mean, completely outlawed. It's completely illegal to do something like that. But for many of these people, you know, that is a very efficient way for them to harvest the food that they, they live upon. And so I have great empathy for... Um, for people who live in vastly different circumstances than I do and not trying to impose, you know, my value system Mm -hmm. uh, on them, which if I did, and if that could ever happen, you know, might literally lead to children starving to death. And uh, (laughs) that's not an option, is it? No, that's not an option. No, (laughs) absolutely not. So... 
Well, you've already taken us through the first half of <laughs> podcast number one. Those go really quick, especially with a guest like you, who we just have so much to talk about. So we're going to take a quick break, but we have a lot to talk about. When we come back, you're listening to Nevada Wild. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on hunting, fishing, boating, and all things wildlife, go to endow.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Nevada Wild. Today, we are talking with Shane Mahoney, the one and only. (laughs) And um, Shane, before the break, you told us a lot of your background and um your views you say it uh plural because there's so many views out there um and you actually could you get into conservation visions and this is Mm -hmm. you have founded this and could you explain what it is exactly sure i'd be glad to um i uh i worked as the the you know the head of research wildlife research for the government of newfoundland and labrador for a long time for 33 years and then the head of science and protected areas and sustainable development, established my own uh, research institute at the university there and so forth. And uh, But you know, uh, governments um, are a really interesting organism in themselves. They have uh, a great admixture of wonderful ideals and hardworking people alongside of massive bureaucracies and, you know, um, great challenges for making quick decisions because there's so many so many things to consider and so many responsibilities. So after I uh, left government, um, you know, it was, uh, there was never any question that I was going to continue to work for animals. Um, and really the only question was, how was I going to do that? And so I'd been very fortunate in having the opportunity to speak in this country and other countries around the world. Um, I was approached by the, uh, some of the leadership in the IUCN, the World Conservation Union, and asked if I would be interested in you know, getting more involved in international efforts, uh, efforts beyond North America. And um, so I formed uh, you know, this little entity called Conservation Visions. It's, you know, it has offices. It's composed of myself and a few other employees. And largely what we do is try to offer up a moderate, inclusive voice that will help develop policies and actions for the conservation of wildlife around the world. And um, that is a a role that I now play in many institutions. I'm vice chair of sustainable use of natural resources globally for the IUCN, the World Conservation Union. serve as Deputy President of Policy and Law for the International Council for the Conservation of Wildlife, International Liaison for the Wildlife Society. Um, And um, I'm a representative on a lot of different international panels and boards and one thing and another. But my whole idea is to bring my experience that goes all the way back to childhood of, you know, caring for these amazing others that we live with um, and trying to bring that, those kinds of perspectives that I hold into the debates and the discussions that go on. 
So that includes giving advice to state agencies, to provincial agencies, to NGOs, to sort of broader governmental structures, working with communities. I'm a big um, fan of human diversity and and wanting to preserve human diversity. Um, you know, we came out of Africa. The last great migration was 60,000 years ago. Um, our genome, our genetic makeup, was virtually identical to what it is today. And yet all the diversity you see around the world is basically culturally mediated, which most people forget. That's That's got nothing to do with genes. That's all to do with culture. And uh, so Conservation Visions, to me, is also a vehicle to talk about this idea of human diversity and human cultural diversity. I don't like the term and never did like the term, challenged the term when I was a graduate student, uh, biodiversity, because I always felt that it sort of laid it out again that, you know, there's them, the biodiversity mm -hmm. entities, and there's us. And uh, I thought that was setting us up for a sort of a, a, an unintentional subconscious continuation of this idea that we are, you know, we are different and therefore we're not quite as dependent on the, the earth, you know, and, and its natural systems as those others are, which live out in the jungle or around the prairie or whatever. And so I never liked that term. And so Conservation Visions is also an entity that talks a lot about the big factors that influence us, climate change, uh, water shortages, uh, the loss of pollinators, the loss of diversity in the world, the loss of you know uh, medicinal plants and other things that can benefit humanity, but also this disappearance of cultural uniqueness. When Europeans came here, when the conquistadors first came and then followed by waves of, of other Europeans, you know, there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 languages spoken here. And all of that diversity of the Native Americans with their different rituals, their different clothing, their different lifestyles, you know, that, that all developed in a space of 13,000 years of experimentation with this continent. And, um, I mean, look, look, look how much we lost. I mean, you know, it's, it's just unbelievable. And you go around the world, you go to Australia, you know, you go to... You go to Asia, you go to Europe, you, you go anywhere in the world, and the story has been exactly the same. And it does sometimes seem very incongruous to me that uh, we can have all these systems in place worrying about, you know, and I agree with them, you know, worrying about the loss of a lizard or an insect or even a microbe or a small plant, and yet day by day by day, the diversity of these human cultures all around the world are blinking out everywhere, probably faster than we're losing, you know, the other components of nature. And this is another reason why I don't like any division between ourselves and the others, because it carries so many of these unintended consequences. If we could only believe that we're all the same, I think we'd have a completely different approach to all of these things. And um, and I don't meet very many people who agree with me on this, by the way. <laughs> um, most people, for religious or other reasons or whatever, they just see humans as over here, and they see all the others as sort of over there. Correct. But um, we're reminded periodically about how close we are when another coronavirus comes up and all of a sudden it jumps from palm civets or bats or wherever, 
into our uh, immune systems. These are clear and constant reminders, all of these, SARS, you know, West Nile, you know, uh, AIDS, uh, all of these, uh, you know, animal-based diseases are just one more demonstration of how we are essentially identical. If we were so different, none of these things would touch us. But we're so like them that, of course, the diseases flow back and forth between us quite happily. And um, so Conservation Visions is a kind of a unique little thing. It doesn't really have much power. It doesn't really have much reach. Um, but what it does have is, um, you know, those very special things that have no form, uh, no weight, no taste, no, no visibility whatsoever, but which change the world. Uh, it has tons of ideas. It really does. Uh, yeah, and so that's what uh, that's what I try to spend my time thinking about and building our ideas. Exactly, <coughs> and I have um, I have some information about conservation visions in front of me, including the vision statements. And um, it's one is a world where conservation matters. Another, which you just talked on, was a world where biodiversity is safeguarded, including the diversity of human cultural experience. And then the third, which I want to get into, is a world where conservation and citizenship are viewed as inseparable mm -hmm. and where a global responsibility to nature is recognized. Mm -hmm. Could you expand on that? You're sure. basically saying it's our job. Um, I mean, it's... It's one thing, being a citizen here on this earth, I guess you could yeah, say, yeah. and the role we play in conservation, it's one thing. It's In a way, it's not an option for us. It shouldn't be an option for us. I mean, you know, your country, the United States of America, uh, offers some of the best studies in this regard, although most historians, <clears throat> you know, I think have... It's impossible to tell every story, but most yeah. historians have missed some important points on the conservation side in America. There's been a huge amount of you know discussion and dialogue around people like Teddy Roosevelt and what they achieved. And um, you know, it occurred to me that um, when I started to read his history and 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 also the history of the country, that um, by the time he left the White House. Um, you know, Theodore Roosevelt was not that highly thought of uh, in in Congress. I mean, mm -hmm. most people were just kind of glad he moved on, you know. Mm -hmm. And and, um, and you know, he did all of these outrageous things. You know, he wondered if he could build a wildlife refuge when he set up Pelican Island, the first one. And uh, his, uh, you know, as people read through the Constitution, of course, and the powers of the president and said, there's just nothing there that gives you the authority to do this, Mr. President. I'm sorry. And he said, well, is there anything there that says I can't do it? And they said, no. Well, then he said, I'll do it. And that's how the first wildlife refuge was formed in this country. And then he went on to do all the things with the national parks and the national forests and, you know, all, so many, so many things. And, of course, he was all part of this big movement to eliminate the slaughter of wildlife and the marketing of wildlife and to and to be concerned not just with, with game species, in quotation marks, but for non-game species, birds. He was an avid birder. He, he, loved, uh, he loved wild birds. And so he made all these changes, I guess is my point. And uh, as with any president, uh, once he left, uh, you know, his, the people who followed him uh, could easily have undone 
all the things that he did. But here we stand, you know, a hundred years, approximately, a little more, since, since he left the White House, and no American president and no Congress has ever rolled back hardly anything of significance that Theodore Roosevelt brought in. So I asked that question to myself, why would that be the case when, you know, people were couldn't wait for him to get mm -hmm. out and they were going to change it all and they were going to do all this kind of thing. And I believe it is because Theodore Roosevelt said explicitly and somehow managed to make the message resonate in the American psyche that you can call yourself an American for a whole variety of reasons, but one of those reasons has to be that you stand for the conservation of the natural resources of this country. How he managed to do that, I do not know, but I know that that's the only logical explanation that comes to my mind to say why the people who came after him didn't try to tear down what he had. And they were vastly different, you know, Republicans and Democrats, you know, had control over different times of the White House and, you know, of the Senate and the House and so on and so forth. And yet to this day, we still by and large have the conservation legacy that that man brought forward. When I travel to places in Africa or, I, or in Central Asia or wherever I may go, you know, you find this kind of pride in people about their land, their country, you know, they... If they're mountain people, they love their mountains. Their mountains are sacred. If, they, if they're the Maasai, they, they love this landscape on which they have lived with their lions and their cattle for, you know, for so long. Um, and I think that that's the only hope that wildlife has. It's good that people from outside those countries talk about it, that Westerners, so-called, you know, weigh in on maybe African issues and all of that. But some of that is very misguided and very patronizing and very colonialist. Um, what we must have are the people in their own country saying these, these animals, these extraordinary things that fascinate us every time we see them. We cannot, cannot help but look at them, for goodness sake, um, that they are part of our national legacy. And we can no more eliminate them, lose them, and call ourselves Ethiopian or call ourselves Tajikistans or Tajiks or um, whatever the country might be, then we could do so if we destroyed our own government or we destroyed our own culture in some other kind of way. So I really believe that the only long-term hope for wildlife is that there is a tie between its conservation and preservation uh, and the idea of nationhood, not nationalism, but the idea of nationhood. And um, so that's why it's one of the uh, kind of parameters that I've articulated as a vision for conservation vision. Very interesting. There's so, so much in that. There that is. <laughs> keep going for I know, we could. That. So, um, but it is time for... It, actually, that's it for because we're going to do two parts with Shane. So that's actually it for this week's Nevada yeah. Wild. You'll want to check out next week because that's when we'll finish up our conversation with Shane. So thank you, everyone, for listening. We appreciate it.
Join us again next week for our next adventure, Nevada Wild. It's a production of the Nevada Department of Wildlife.